Hello to all my coffee lovers, educational boundary pushers. This is Coffee Chug, and you are listening to Episode 6 of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast series, created by here, the one and only Aaron Maurer, as most of you already know. On Twitter and the online social media world, I am Coffee Chug or Coffee Chug Books. I can't begin to express how honored I am to present this next episode to you that I have. I have the distinct honor and privilege to have spoke and chatted with the author and writer Clive Thompson for this particular podcast. Clive has been someone who... It's been kind of an interesting road for me in terms of I have been a avid reader of Wired Magazine for many, many years. And over time, prior to reading his work and connecting with him today, his article is always the first thing I read every time my Wired Magazine comes in. Since I've been reading Wired now for many years, Clive has also written a new book this year called Smarter Than You Think. And this is a book which still reigns as the best book that I have read this year in 2013, and it's definitely going to be one of my all-time favorites. This particular conversation talks about some of the really intriguing and interesting ideas that Clive writes about in his book, as well as some other key things here, and obviously could have been a podcast that I could have talked with him for three or four hours. I wish we would have met in person over coffee with the microphone to just sit and record it all because he has so much to offer, so many interesting ideas. And what I like best about it is the book isn't written particularly for education, but there's a huge educational slant to his information, to his words of wisdom, and really what I hope that teachers and not just teachers, anybody who's listening to this podcast listens to is what can we do? How do we adapt and change? How do we implement and embrace the technology coming our way to becoming better people, better citizens, more productive, increasing our capabilities of learning, and at the end of the day, just becoming better people. So, I bring to you in this episode the chat that we ha- that we had today. Um, unfortunately, the audio equipment shorted out on me. So the last question, in which I asked Clive about an article in Fast Company that was written discussing predictive technology, was cut off. But I will try to leave some information in the show notes. But I think everything else is spot on and it will definitely leave your brain completely full of ideas, thoughts, and questions. All of which I hope that you share with me by leaving comments either on my blog or leaving comments. And I would also like some feedback on iTunes. I would love to expand the conversation so as you listen to this, I would love to hear what you have to say, what you're thinking, and what further questions you have that we could possibly address those in upcoming podcasts. So let's go on and catch the infinite wisdom of the writer, author, Clive Thompson, and the amazing ideas that he presents in his latest book, Smarter Than You Think. This is Coffee Chug, Living on the Edge of Chaos, podcast episode number six.
Thank you for joining us on the Edge of Chaos. Chaos. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Mauer. Chaos. 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 At six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Aaron Mauer, outside the box thinker, here to teach each and every teacher how to tinker. Living on the edge of chaos, going insane. Listening to coffee chugs like caffeine for the brain. One of the top teachers in Iowa, word is born. Here to show the world that there's more here than corn. Living on the edge of chaos. Chaos. Living on the edge of chaos. Chaos. Living on the edge of chaos. Chaos. Coffee chugs. Coffee chugs. All right, well, welcome to another episode of Living on the Edge of Chaos. This is Aaron Maurer. Most of you know me as Coffee Chug Books on the social media world. And I have the awesome privilege and honor to have um, the amazing author and thinker and and writer, um, Clive Thompson, here on, on the show today. Um, and the reason that I, that I picked to bring Clive on or asked him and he graciously said yes, was I just recently read his book smarter than you think. And up until this point, it is still my favorite book of the year that I've read. And, um, I've read a lot of books this year. And the reason that I really enjoyed this book, which is what I want to pick his brain on a little bit is because he's writing about new ideas and things happening and developing all over the world right now that in terms of an educator, we need to be thinking about how we're giving our kids a step in the right direction. Um, and so Clive, I know maybe I'll, I'll give you a little chance here. If you want to introduce yourself a little bit, maybe um, sure. and you can kind of plug um, who you are a little bit and then we'll get into the first question. Sure. So, um, so I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a journalist. I'm a, I'm a reporter and, and I've spent about 20 years, um, reporting on how digital tools affect the way that we the way that we live, uh, um, the way that they work themselves into our everyday expression, the way we learn things, the way we share them, the way we the way we cogitate on them uh, and act on them. And so, um, my book was an attempt to sort of synthesize what I've seen over twenty years of this reporting. Uh, I, I'm primarily a magazine writer in my, in my day job. I, I write for the New York Times Magazine. I write for Wired. Um, so I've, I've spent, you know, 15, 20 years writing these sort of four or 5,000 word stories every time something would come along, like, you know, back, back in the nineties, it was, you know, instant messaging or even hotmail, uh, you know, uh, uh, Flickr, uh, you know, then, then Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram, every time something would come along, I would basically say, okay, so what are people doing with this? And I would, you know, do the reporting and I would try and find what historical analogs would help explain this. Uh, um, I would try and find some of the social science would help explain um, what was going on in, in, in our modes of expression. Um, and uh, I also found that over these over the 20 years, it's kind of funny. I started off being a bit of a pessimist about technology. I thought, like, wow, you know, back in the 90s, it's a terrible idea to let all these people on the internet. You know, they'll just be talking about gossip and dumb stuff, and it'll be crap, and you know, <laughs> culture will be will be ruined. Um, but over over all this reporting, I kept on, I kept on being challenged in that thesis because I would just routinely encounter people who were doing these very clever and inventive and creative things that I never would have predicted. Um, and so the reporting sort of showed me that um, uh, given new ways to 
communicate, to collaborate, uh, people will do very inventive things. And, that, and the book is basically trying to map out what those new modes of expression are doing to us. Awesome. And I know I have read a lot of your work from Wired. That's how my first connection with you and your article is always the first one that I read every time. It's just the, the habit that I have. Um, so when I got to your book, I was, it was one of those books where I just kept going, oh, this is, this is so great. And one of the ideas that you talk about in your book, you talk about a lot of great things, but the one that stood out to me the most that I think is, is very, very important um, in the education world, we call them soft skills, but you talk about this thinking out loud, or I think you phrase it more as, as public thinking. Um, and, and, and I don't know if you want to maybe go into a little bit about a brief definition of public thinking and the importance of how that, how, how important that that's becoming in this day and age, because it's happening all the time. Our kids are doing it um, all the time. And I guess where I see it uh, from an educator standpoint is kids are, they're on Instagram, they're on Snapchat, whatever app is, is the current trend and they're public thinking all the time. But then they come to school, the classroom. And as soon as they walk into the school walls, it's almost like they put up a wall where they act like they don't know how to public think anymore. And when we ask them to blog or do stuff about their learning, they act like they've never seen it, you know, so I see it from this big divide and, and we go, well, they don't know how to do it. Well, they do. It's, it's everywhere. And so, yeah. um, I don't know when you're doing that research or you the public thinking, maybe a little sure. bit, I'll let you define it. And then, uh, any kind of thoughts you have on that? Yeah, sure. So, so, um, when, when I, when I talk about public thinking, what I really mean is the fact that, um, as it's become increasingly easy for um, people to, to sort of, you know, compose ideas and send them to other people to make them public, um, it's been this massive transition from uh, us being a society of mostly private thinkers, you know, walking around with, you know, ideas and things you're wondering about, questions you have, things you're reading. Uh, we mostly kept that stuff to ourselves. We talked about it with people who were around us, but we did not have any way to set it down before an audience. Um, now we do, and we do it routinely. We do it with every email we send. We do it with every um, every thread we talk, jump into on Facebook. We do it with every you know um, Tumblr post. Uh, we do it. Uh, uh, we do it with with Twitter if you're using that. We do it with one-to-one text messaging. And so I was interested in what this does to the caliber of our thinking. Um, what I learned, uh, you know, from the reporting and looking at the social science is that one of the, one of the really big things is that this has created a, a big sense of audience in everyday life. And audiences, when we're doing all this writing, all this composition, it's for someone else, sometimes for several people. And this, this you know, has, has the you know, the, the well-documented effect of, of sort of snapping you to attention for, and, and making you go, okay, what am I saying here? You know, you, I've got to be more clear. These people are going to talk back at me. I, I want to seem clever. There's a social pressure. You know, I've got to be more clever now. Um, and, and studies have shown that, you know, that this gets people to write, like if they write for themselves, they write for an audience, the audience is like 40% longer. The sentences are more complex. People do more synthesis of the things they know. And there's this additional benefit that if, if you're sort of, if you're, if you're communicating to someone else about something that you've been reading uh, or been thinking about, this activates what's known as a generation effect, whereby if you write something down or have to communicate something, it actually helps you remember it better. Because um, you know, if I just read an article and I'm like, all right, that was interesting, but if I sort of get into it 
you know, conversation online with someone, even an instant messaging with a friend, I'm going to remember that way better because the act of having to externalize it, um, how to, having to generate information about it really cements it in our heads. And, and educators have long known this, of course. That's why we tell students when you're studying, don't just read it, you know, r try and r write down what you've learned, even for yourself, because that's the generation effect, right? So the puzzle you've had is how do you get kids to do this in the classroom, right? And uh, and I, I wondered about this too because, you know, clearly, you know, kids will write more and they will write longer and they will write better if they can do this. And, and a lot of it came down to um, the, the successful experiments that, that I saw when I talked to teachers was that they had to have a really authentic audience, you know? So um, often this means the whole world. Like really, like, like you know, a teacher – is and students know this and teachers know this is an inauthentic audience right, right? right. <laughs> you're yeah. right you're writing yeah. with a teacher and everyone's kind of like well you know and i remember this when i was a kid why am i writing this essay you know what it's for the, te the teacher already knows this i'm not i'm not actually telling them anything new so it, it always feels this horribly artificial um and the reason why they're so excited and they do so much of this this writing outside of their of their of their life, and in fact, you know, we know how much there is. Andrea Andrea Lunsford at Stanford, she she collected together college students five years Stanford, everything they wrote, and forty percent of all their writing was outside of the classroom, and it, and it's growing. So like the amount they're doing out there is amazing. Um, the trick seems to be to, to getting figuring out a vehicle that will give them a really authentic audience that isn't just a teacher and maybe isn't even just the school. It's like it's like the world, you know. Um, you know, New Zealand did this great experiment. They had middle schoolers, and they were like, "All right, we want you to start, you know, blogging and writing your essays." We're going to write them for the world. And the kids are grumbling. They didn't want to do this. But the teachers basically created – they brute force created an authentic audience. They, 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 were, they emailed everyone they knew around the world. And they said, OK, our kids are doing this stuff. We want you to show up, read it, and comment. And so the kids are grumbling, and they're, they're not enjoying the writing. And one day they show up, and there's these comments from people in New York and Germany and whatnot. And they were writing about a book, and the author showed up and commented. <laughs> and suddenly they were freaking out you know, because, they're, oh, my God, there's actually people out there. And they started writing more, and they started writing longer, and they started having these nuanced arguments about um, about domain knowledge. Like they're like, you know, well, uh, you know, you can't say you can't write that weird local idiom that we have here in New Zealand because someone in Chicago is not going to get that. This is really this is complicated, hard stuff to get kids to do. Um, and, and sure enough, the more of this they did, the more the writing scores in the school went up, and even the reading scores went up, because you know when they were when they were forced to write about publicly about what they were reading, they they you know they became better readers. So uh, and I've seen this over and over again. Heidi Seawick, a wonderful teacher up in Ontario, she's in my book. Um, she's been she's she's done a lot of these interesting Twitter conversations where that she'll she'll pick something that students are, are reading or they're interested in. They said, all right, we are going to have a day long Twitter conversation with the world, and they pick something that's kind of interesting or controversial like for example they did um they did hannah's suitcase which is a like a holocaust story uh, um very intense stuff and and she you know again she did that thing where she helped prime the pump they they, they she tweeted at organizations she tweeted at groups that might be interested in this and said we're going to have this conversation kids are going to be tweeting and talking about their thoughts about the book and they had a hashtag 
and they got they got they got dozens, hundreds of people around the world uh, in, in, into this. And so again, the kids when they when they see there's really an audience, a real audience, that's when they snap to attention. Now this is a hard thing to do though. For you know, it takes work. This takes work. The teacher is already slammed for time, and this is yeah. more organizing. Um, it takes the willingness of the school to be public. Not all schools are like that. Uh, um, some schools have fairly strict policies on social media. They're like you know, sorry, you know, we, you know, you can't use that stuff. Or if you use it, it's got to be just internal. Um, so these are all things that have to be negotiated. They're, they're not easy to negotiate. Sometimes they're not possible. Um, but more and more, I'm seeing it happen. My my school, my kids are in a school, public school here in Brooklyn, and uh, uh, I would say probably a majority of the of the teachers now have Twitter accounts for the class, and they'll take the things that they're that they're studying and they'll get the kids to write about it. And uh, it's really a blast because like now the parents and and family from far away have this sort of way to interact with the classroom and the kids get really excited when they see that when they see relatives or people they know you know you know from around the world saying oh that's really interesting what about this um the ever the whole atmosphere in the in the, in the class gets really electric um so it, it it does take work uh and it's not easy to do and like you know you know as well as anyone know the older the kids get the more jaded they get the harder it is to get them to right. do stuff uh, um this is it's never been easy to sort of convince them to, to talk about the to get excited about the stuff that we want to learn in school history civics science I mean you know it's uh, um, uh, a, a audience audience helps a lot it's not a magic bullet uh, you know it's, right. uh, that, 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 that's what I've learned in talking to talking to teachers around the world yeah I think in your book you you say something in the book which speaks to what you just said and I think in the book you uh, you write a Teachers are an inauthentic audience, which I would agree with with you completely. <laughs> but you go on to say a writer being forced to write to a reader who is forced to read, and that's yes, so yes, you know yes. that that's so spot on with how we need to flatten our classroom walls and get them thinking to the big world, you know. Because then you go on and say the public has a choice not to read, and the kids that's know right. that. So when they do leave a comment, they took that notion to read it and then leave a, a comment um, as well. And you know, you know the other th the other thing I've heard from educators is that one of the fun things is like um, experimenting with different public thinking venues to try and figure out you know how they might be useful. So, um, so Instagram has become a big thing now, right? Yeah. And the funny thing about Instagram is, at first I was, uh, when I started using, them, I was like, oh, this is nice photos. I get to look at pretty photos. These filters, it's great. But then the conversation started happening, and it turns out that like that. Um, I get I, I now get in richer conversations on Instagram than I get on Facebook um, because there's something about showing a cluster of people and it's often I mean there's a lot of strangers from around the world yeah. that are following me on on Instagram because it's a it's a non linguistic thing a picture anyone can look at a picture so you have the people from Vienna these people from Russia we sort of barely speak each other languages we're sort of trying to communicate but I find we get these great conversations because there's something really interesting about showing something from your point of view. And I've heard – I was just talking to some teachers, and they were saying they were going to try experimenting with Instagram as a public thinking venue because the kids are all using it. And they would do things like they would take a – they would take a, like a, a, a picture of a painting at an art gallery and say, you know, what do you think about this? Or they would take a picture of something in the community or something funny or something um, thought-provoking or even the picture of like a poem or a page from a text they're reading. Huh. And because the kids were fluent in using Instagram, they actually got them to write more in that vehicle because they were yeah. saying, well, let's, let's take this native vehicle they're using, they're fluent in it, and let's harness it for education. And so a, a lot of it is really experimentation, like, okay, what are the kids using? 
is there a way that we can get conversation flowing here? Um, and it turns out weirdly that Instagram, you think of it as pictures, but there's an awful lot of writing that goes on in there now. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the amount of comments that I see, I'm on Instagram and I've just got nerdy, cheesy pictures. I'm starting to learn to figure out the differences you know, uh, what you take pictures of an Instagram may be more different than what you post on like a professional website. And it's different than maybe yes. what you put on Facebook and it's different than Twitter. And I'm, you know, it's for me, for the longest point is I was just blasting the same thing everywhere. And now I'm yes, slowly, right. you know, and, and that, I think that's where that's a good starting point, but then you start to go, okay, what is it? You know, I think that Instagram is, is what you just said. It's more of that, that rawness. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's here is my yep. perception of this particular moment. And, right, right, and it's you know and, it's and, it goes into I think I think a, a bigger discussion I think when I think of students is all these these tools one we got to get more teachers on board with them but two what we the bigger thing is education now and that public thinking becomes branding yourself who are you yeah, yeah, and how do you absolutely. sell and operate it to deliver your whether it's your learning or who you are or your personality. Yeah. And those are the conversations that how do we weave that into the scope of education as well? Because that's why I think the learning becomes more personalized, which hooks the kids. Yes. Well, and, and, there, and there, there is, and this is another thing teachers, you know, have been telling me that uh, there's a real dimension of civics too, right? Like, so, you know, schools have long had as a mandate, um, you know, teaching children, uh, kids, teenagers, what it means to interact with the world around them, you know? So like it's in the old days and I'm 45, when I'm a kid, that's like, how do you write a letter to a politician? How do you write a letter to the editor? How do you participate in a debate? You know, how do you, um, how do you do all these things that constitute sort of being a citizen? Um, and now that a certain amount of, of civics is happening online, this is where you interact with the public. These teachers would tell me, well, it's, it, it's, you know, this is what we need to be teaching now because, you know, they're going to learn, they'll sort of, you know, they'll sort of hack through and figure out their socializing online. But, um, but, you know, it's still incumbent upon us as, as members of the community to use this time we have with the students to show them, you know, what does it mean to be helpful, to be polite, uh, to defuse, you know, sort of tension, um, to how to, how to, how to ask a question intelligently, how to answer a question intelligently. And I thought that that was a really cool way of framing it. When you think of this as, as, as an engagement with the public, as a civic dimensions, um, then it becomes really, it's another way to talk about it with, you know, with the kids, you know, that this is, um, you're going to be encountered. This is where you're going to be encountering strangers. It's actually good to encounter strangers, right? right? You know, like that. This is that's a big part of a public is, and we're going to, you know, we're going to learn how to do that. And so, one of the things, like again, I'll go back to this example of this teacher Heidi Sirik. One of the things that started happening with the kids was as they used Twitter. I mean, they had all sort of used Facebook, and they understood that Facebook was where that was people they already knew. That was kind of like they or, or they or they knew a little bit. You know, that was their their social circle, their family circle. Twitter was interesting because it was where they could they could reach out and talk to anyone in the world. And suddenly the, they, they realized, oh, now this means that when I'm doing research, I have the library, I have the internet, I have my teachers, but now I also have um, potentially uh, useful strangers who are subject matter experts. So one of them was she was doing a work on uh, the Arctic. I think it was I think it was something about maybe the melting arm, how that was going to change the way that nations dealt with it. Someone from, you know, from Russia who was looking at this, and she was sort of tweeting around to various people. She was doing that classic at reply thing where you, you know, you try and do a polite 
at replies. You're not like barging in or like you know. And she 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 at replied to me and she said, you know, you're a journalist. You know, do you do you have do you know anyone who you think could maybe uh, could talk to me a little bit about Russian policy towards the melting Arctic? And I, I said, well, lo and behold, I think I can actually because <laughs> I, I I had read I had read I had done a little story about the Arctic three or four years earlier, and I'd read some fascinating papers. And I said, you know, I I. The Twitter accounts of a couple of Russian foreign ministry uh, and environmental ministry people, and also from Finland, which is another Arctic nation, and she started at replying at them, and I, I, I think she got in touch with them and ended up. And so, so this, awesome. you know, this is this is part of this is what's so great about this is that if if you can find a way to integrate in the classroom, it becomes this way to think about civics and where knowledge comes from, and that knowledge isn't just in books. And 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 documents online, although those are very val- clearly valuable resources, it's also in people, right? And you know, and I'm a reporter. This is this is what I do. I read a lot, but I also talk to people a lot. And um, and I think one of the really exciting things about the internet is that it has opened up for students um, the fact that there that 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 knowledge comes not just from books and documents, but from other experts and people and there are now ways to contact those people and do this type of research that previously was really only possible if you were a formal journalist or a scholar um i think that's incredibly exciting and 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 it it, it, it's it's part of this sort of hacking through what it means to be thinking and living um intellectually in public right now yeah and i think that leads into the next question i wanted to ask is as we have all these people and resources on the internet and twitter instagram whatever avenue we want to go it, it lends itself to one of the new literacies that you talk about in your book, which is search literacy. Um, and, you know, so now we have this massive avenue of resources. However, whether it's people, books, online, doesn't matter. How do we begin to, you know, what are the skills necessary to find that search? And I guess the next step is almost to – once you can search it, how do you decipher it to find what you need? Yeah, you yeah. know, because I think that's a, a whole new frontier yep. that that we're all facing, not just education, but as people, yeah. is I can do a Google search. I get 147,000 different web pages. I can go to Twitter, and the whole world's there. I can post something on Instagram. You know, how do you, how do you pull, navigate, piece it together? Yeah. And I think when you talk about that in your book, I go, yeah. That's such an essential skill that we need. The lovely school bell there. Uh, it's such an essential skill that we need to start to develop and build, I think, into school's curriculum because it's different than going down to the library and checking out a book. You know, the, I mean, absolutely, ab- absolutely, yeah. The library, the library, you know, the material there was vetted by someone. You know, right, the, the librarian right. picked it and chose it. Um, and they'll be the first ones to tell you that some of that stuff gets dated and is wrong. But you know, but there was at least you know, a, you know, a someone who was who was picking and choosing it. Um, when, when I talk, so, so, yes, yeah, search literacy is a big deal. Um, kids are not natively good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's complicated. Adults are bad at it, frankly. Yeah, we um, are. <laughs> you know, we, we tend to go with the top link in Google, and they, ah, you know, that's it. You know, whatever you know, Google tells us, and you know, Google might might be right, but it, it's incumbent upon us to be critical thinkers about this stuff. Well, how do you do that? Um, you know, the, 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 the leaders here tend to be librarians because they've spent a long time thinking about how to get kids to, to think critically about all forms of, of knowledge. Um, and, and some of the things they'll do, they'll, they'll tell me, is the first one is they, 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 they show kids that there are resources online that they can go to that are, that are um, already uh, uh, um, 
uh, more academically sound and catered than the open internet. So they show them things, news databases, you know, they show them like there's, there's, there's like a, you can search Google news, you know, and that's newspapers that there are online academic databases that library has its own databases, that there are universities and government sources. So one of the first things they do is say, look, the internet is not just uh, um, an equal mass of stuff. They're, they're even inside this apparent, sort of open, you know, uh, area, there is, there, there are, hi there's hierarchies of organizations. They show them that. Um, the, the second thing they do uh, is that, um, is that um, one of the things that's really interesting is that, is that kids, when they, when they search for something that is, um, that is their particular passion, um, research shows, Project Information Literacy did some really great work on this. They found that kids will persist longer, check more second sources, go further down into the rankings when they're looking for something that, that is their passion. Like, for example, they want to buy a mobile phone, they want to buy a, 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 a digital camera. They will persist far longer in the research than for, than for like something for school, right? Well, of course, their money's on the line, their skin's on the line, <laughs> and they will do things that are fantastic. They will, they will, they, they were, they're far more likely to ask friends uh, for their context. They're far more likely to ask their parents to help them understand what they're finding. They will even ask their teachers. It's really interesting. So things that are related to health, to religion, to their money, um, they're better searchers than when you say, all right, I want you to find, uh, you know, the, the birthplace of Madame Curie, right? Yeah. Um, well, why is that? That's because they're passionate about it and also because they have more domain knowledge. Um, they already know a little bit about mobile phones. They already know a bit about cameras, um, they talk about friends, so so when they read stuff online, they can fit it into their existing knowledge, and and that's how you disambiguate crap from good stuff. Is when you already know a little bit about an area, so you can know well this this website right. seems seems like a scammy thing, and so what the teachers say is well you know if you get them to do a search for something they're passionate in. And then you get them to do a search for something that, that is just a new thing that they're trying to learn about. You can show them that, well, this was this thing that you did for yourself was easier to do. Why was it easier to do? It's because you already knew a bunch about mobile phones. You already knew a bunch about the sport. You could fit it into your existing knowledge. And so you were a better and more critical searcher. Um, and, it, and you essentially show them the, the value of knowing – uh, uh, knowing something about a field before you get into it. So if you want, And in a weird way, as I say in my book, the great challenge – of Google and the internet is that it actually makes having a broad-based uh, knowledge of the world more important, not less, right? Like, you know, like th the goal of high <laughs> That's very true. High school, you know a little bit about everything. A little bit about physics, a little bit about history, a little bit about English, a little bit about politics, a little bit about math. Um, we wanted people to be reasonably well-rounded in the world. Well, that is even more important now because 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 what we know is that you're a better searcher when you can fit this new piece of knowledge into something you already know. So, so I mean, like, so once again, we see the, the paradox here: um, greater rewards, but greater work. Uh, um, uh, the, the trick is, you know, well, how do you get the kids to understand that they need to know a little bit about everything so that they won't get hoodwinked? You know, well, one of the ways to show them is to illustrate that they are better and smarter at searching. When they when they're doing something they're already interested in, like you know you, you know here's a video game you know Constance Steinkohler has done this you know like she takes she takes kids who are reading three levels below in like let's get you to read something about interested in and suddenly they're reading stuff that's that's higher and they're persisting and they're figuring out uh, the meaning of complicated <laughs> through context is very very care about what's going on so. You know, not everything can be video games in school. They got to do the history. They, but some of the showing them the fact that they're able.
Indians I know a lot about can sort of teach them something about the grit and persistence of knowledge that they need to approach the rest of the world in. You know, it, it, again, no magic bullet. St teachers are still necessary. Schools are still necessary. Smaller classrooms are still necessary. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but uh, but uh, but the 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 the, up, the upside, uh, if you can, if you if we can get to this basic level of literacy, is fantastic. And and I, I'm that when I, when I when I talk to these librarians, I'm like. God, this is fantastic. They're they're training these kids better than the adults around them. And if and, and I, I I I can some of the kids I've seen they'll be they'll be far better at, at googling by the time they get through with their high school than some of the forty five year olds are around me, frankly. Um, right. Uh, you know, what you just said was so true. I guess I never thought about that whole idea of knowing a little bit and everything. It would be so. I mean, that's just. Yep. I'll, I'm gonna have to to sit on that one and keep thinking about that because I've ne I guess I've never thought of it in that terms of context and I and I, I really like I just like that idea I'm gonna well, I'm gonna, and, I'm gonna, and, I'm gonna have to ponder that a little bit that's good it's good the, the, the other the other reason why it's good to know but memory also works this way right like what why are we able like you know like memory studies have shown like we're we're bad at remembering details you know we're, we're we we kind of get the gist of things someone explains to us we we forget the details why is that um, well it's because you know if we don't have existing knowledge in which to scaffold and fit this new information into, it's easy for it to slip away. In contrast, when we're passionate about something, we can, when we encounter new information in that field, boom, it stays right up there in our heads. And that's why, you know, someone who's really into their particular sport can just reel off these statistics about players um, and then space out on, on the birthday <laughs> of their spouse, right? right that's right. because, you know, they, they know a lot about their passion and so that the information, the new information sticks. Um, so uh, once again, we see that with memory, knowing a little bit of everything helps because like if you know a little bit about, about the history of Pakistan, when you learn something new about the reaction of of Waziristan residents drone strikes, it has it, it, it's like a Lego brick. It has another Lego brick to fit into your existing knowledge of Pakistan. It's easy to remember things if you already know a little bit about it. And so this again is, you know, and this is not rocket science. I mean, we've right, known this right, going back to John right. Dewey and education. It's just it's it's never been easy to do. It's always it's it's always been hard to motivate people to to care broadly about things. We've always been partially successful and partially unsuccessful about it in it you know this this is this is the this is the albatross wrapped around the neck of every every high school and middle school teacher right right yeah awesome well hey i know where you we talked Talk about, about going, going 30 minutes, minutes. You, got you got time for, for one, one more question, question before we sure, wrap things up and unfortunately that last question did not get recorded and so hopefully as my new podcast studio equipment comes in that will not be an issue anymore but what I would love for you now at this point, one, I hope that you go out and buy his book, track his book down, and read it because I think it's essential reading for anybody who wants to see the ideas that he shares in this podcast and then tenfold more of all the stuff in this book, all the new literacies, the research, things that are happening, what people are doing. It's such a great read and one that's really going to open your eyes um, to a lot of new thoughts and ideas. Secondly, I'd love for you to, once again, if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, or feedback, to leave that on my blog, coffeeforthebrain.blogspot.com, or on iTunes. Either one, I would greatly appreciate it. I look forward to your feedback. I look forward to your questions and ideas. And until the next podcast episode, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving as I sit here and wrap this up Tuesday night on November 26th. And I will be in touch soon with the next podcast episode. Take care, everybody. I hope you enjoy it. 
Look forward to talking to you. Get nice and fat, eat lots of food on Thanksgiving. And as always, keep it real. This is Coffee Chug. Peace out.